Our scripture reading tonight is in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 15. We are going to read together verses 1 through 14. So Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 through 14. Listen to the word of God. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. For there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress, as the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. Brothers and sisters, tonight we hear a command that comes from God towards us in the New Testament. And it is the same commandment that God gives to the Old Testament saints. It's found in verse 11. There's a command. You shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. That is an explicit command about what you are to do with money. God is talking about your billfold, your purse. If you're a kid, your piggy bank. And the Lord gives instructions about the use of money here. The reason I'm preaching a sermon that deals with money and giving, it is because the young adults tonight are having a Bible study where they are going to talk about money and finances. 
I'm not sure exactly what the content of the video is going to be that they're going to watch. Probably deals with how to use your money properly. And so that's a topic that's in front of our minds too tonight. Now that's a very fitting topic for our young people to talk about and our young adults to talk about. How do we handle money? Some people have pointed out that Jesus had a lot to say about money, and he did. He said, make sure that you only serve God and you don't serve God and mammon, that is the love of money. Jesus will make big points about money when he sees people making donations. Rich people publicly blowing trumpets, making massive donations, and then here comes this widow lady and she just drops a teeny bit of money into the offering and the Lord has something to say about that. Now this is also relevant for you kids. We live in an affluent society where our kids even have money. How do our kids have money? Well, sometimes grandpa and grandma give them gifts of money at Christmas time. Maybe you get some jobs, even young kids start getting jobs. Maybe you just mowed some lawns, boys, or you work for some farmer, but you made some money. Your girls maybe started to do a little babysitting, and the Lord has given you money. The question is, what do you do with the money that the Lord has given you? The Bible does not exalt and glorify the poor. There are some people today who they act as if it is virtuous to be poor, and therefore you should try to be poor. The Bible does critique poor people who become covetousness, covetous. Also, remember, the Bible does not demonize the wealthy, although the Bible has things to say to the wicked rich who misuse their money. But the big point tonight is that you are called, and I am called, to glorify God with our money. We're called to magnify God with our money. Have you noticed the planet Jupiter lately? Jupiter is as close to the earth as it is apparently going to be in something like 40 years. That's why when you watch the moon rise, there's this very bright planet in the sky. If you are going through that stage in life where you bought a telescope, maybe you thought it's time to buy a telescope for your kids. We've maybe all gone through that stage. What happens when you put the telescope outside and you aim it at Jupiter? Well, suddenly something that already is massive, it's the biggest planet in our solar system. Well, it even becomes bigger to your eyes. It gets magnified. Now, we can use our money in a way that magnifies God. Not that we can make God greater in his no, in his essence, God is the infinitely glorious great God. We cannot add to him in his glorious essence, but what we can do is we can help other people see something more of the greatness of the love and generosity of the Lord God Almighty. And that's what we mean when we say we're to magnify God with our money. Augustine began his confessions by asking, what praise is worthy of God? And yes, our God is worthy of great praise. In fact, why has he saved you? The ultimate reason why he has saved you is for the praise of the glory of his grace. In other words, he has saved you for the magnification of his grace. Why has God given you money? Once again, it is for the magnification of his name. 
Now, we can dishonor God with our money, and maybe if we think back and think about how we spent our money this week or just ask our question, how did I violate the 10th commandment this past week? You know, coveting things that the Lord has not chosen to give to you. We can dishonor God by how we use our money. But the other side is this. What a high calling we have to magnify God with our money. You know, that lifts the spending of our money out of the mundane. When we take our money and we use it for the support of our family, that glorifies God. The Bible has strong things to say about a man who doesn't provide for his family. But also when we take money, when we open our billfold or take out our purse or write out a check to help a needy person, God is greatly exalted. That's not mundane. That's, in fact, the chief end of man operating, which is to glorify God by exalting his generosity. Tonight, we therefore want to talk about how we are to magnify God with a wide open hand. We'll talk about three things. First, the ever-present reality of benevolent needs, and that's something we have to face because sometimes we think, well, everybody around us is rich. There are no poor anymore around us. Number two, beware of a tight fist and a bilial heart. There's a warning. Negatively and then positively, the command is give open-handedly with a cheerful heart. First of all, we look at the ever-present reality of benevolent needs. Do you know what the Puritans called the laws that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 15? They called them the kindly laws of the Old Testament. What a great way to refer to them. The kindly laws of the Old Testament. They called them that because God is giving laws that show his kindness towards the poor and needy in Israel. Among these laws, for example, God says that on the year of the seventh year, when it's a year of Sabbath rest, God says the poor can go into everybody's vineyards and into their fields, and whatever grows up on that year, they can harvest. You know, God had divided the life of his people into a, a seven-day week, going back to creation. God created the world in six days, and then sometimes people seem to forget that there's actually seven days in the creation week, and then God rested. And that is why to this very day we have a seven-day week. And the Israelites, too, their life was just like ours. They would work for six days, and then they would rest on the seventh now, because of the great significance of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead on the first day of the week, now we rest from our labors on the first day of the week, and that is our day of Sabbath rest. Notice how in the Old Testament they looked backwards, you know, to God creating the first six days. Now we look ahead, don't we, to the future glorious Sabbath rest that lies in the future. We look for a new heavens and a new earth. But God told his people, Work six days and then rest on the seventh day, and don't even harvest your fields on the day of rest, like I saw some people doing this morning as I drove to Danville, Illinois, and back again. God said to his people, don't harvest on the day of Sabbath rest. 
But on top of that, did you know that God also divided their time into seven yearly periods? So he said for six years you could plant, you know, your wheat, their corn. No, they didn't have corn there. Corn was discovered, of course, maize in the New World. But they could plant their wheat or their barley. And then for six years they could be harvesting that. For six years they would go out to their grapevines and they'd go through the process of pruning their grapevines in early spring, which you know you need to do if you have some grapevines before things start to grow. But God said, no, when the seventh year comes, guess what? No planting. You can't go into your grapevines and you can't start cutting all those branches off like you normally do the other years. No, you're to give the land a rest. But God says in that year, guess what? Whatever grows up, and you know that even if you don't prune your grapes, if you make a mistake and don't prune your grapes, there are going to be grapes that grow, not as much as otherwise. But the poor you see in the land could come and they could harvest the grapes. They could eat the grapes. Do you kids know where raisins come from? Yeah, they come from grapes. So you, you can pick the grapes and dry them out and have raisins, and you can make grape juice, and you can make wine. So this is what the poor could do. They could go into all the vineyards and do that. And also, you know how it is. Have you kids ever grown, grown, uh, you know, driven by a field, and you'll see there's all soybeans, but you'll see, oh, there's a bunch of sunflowers growing up in that field, or there's corn plants coming up yet. Well, that's from last year where some seeds fell there. Well, once again, in people's wheat fields, the wheat, some wheat would still come up yet. And the poor could go there and harvest the wheat, and that's where they got their, their flour for their bread from. So God has these kindly laws for the Old Testament saints. Now, God's generosity is evident towards this, towards the wealthy too, or towards those who have land and, and are having a good income. In Leviticus 25, if you turn to Leviticus 25, you see what God says there to people who might say, well, I can't afford to let the fields lay fallow for the seventh year. Look in Leviticus 25 and look at verse 20. There it says, and if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. What God says is in his generosity, he's going to provide you are sufficiently in that six years so that you'll make it through an entire year where you don't even plant a harvest and have to wait all the way till the next season before you get your harvest. So that's God's generosity towards the poor in providing them food during that seventh year. Also, God's generosity is evident in the fact that he says all debts that the poor have incurred in those first six years, are to be completely forgiven when that seventh year comes. Now, he does say that if you have loaned money, for example, to an unbeliever, a pagan from a different country, they still have to pay it back. But if it's a brother, you see, if it's a fellow believer, God says, no, the payment is canceled. Kids, you know that in India, 
among the Hindus that you can get to the point where you're 18, 19, and you get your first job, and you know what you'll find out you have to do? You have to pay a debt that your grandpa or your great-grandpa or your great-great-grandpa incurred. It'd be like this. Your, your grandpa passes away and has a big debt, and now you have to pay it. That's what it is like among the Hindus. God wants nothing to do with anything like that. I mean, he even says that for seven years, all debts are canceled among my covenant people. We find that here mentioned, another thing mentioned here in verse 12 of our chapter in Deuteronomy 15, we find that let's just say that you become very poor. Kids, imagine this. Your dad has a big debt. He can't pay it. And you're, you know, you're 16 years old. You're a young man. You're strong, lots of energy. You know what your dad might have to do? Sell you as a bondservant, and you would have to become a bondservant of somewhere else, someone else and work for them. But what happens when the seventh year comes? Verse 12 says, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. So what a, what a bad situation this could be, kids. Imagine that your mom is a widow. Your dad dies, which is rough enough. But now, in the ancient world, it was hard if you were a woman to make a living sometimes. So your dad has passed away. Your mom can't get a job. She has no money, so she has to borrow from people, and so she gets into debt. And so what would happen is that when you got old enough where you could be of the age where you could be away from your mom, a little older of some type, then what would happen, someone would say, okay, um, you're going to have to sell me your kid now to pay off your debt. So imagine that. Your dad has died, your mom is trying to take care of you, and now you're going to be auctioned off to whoever will pay the most for you, and then you'll have to go work as like a slave for them. Not a fun situation. But here's the thing. God says, if that happens, on the seventh year you have to be released. Wouldn't that be great? Because now you can go back to your mom who's a widow, and now you could work and you could provide for your mom. So that was one of the kindly laws of the Old Testament, too. We find in the Bible, too, that God shows that care for widows. Remember the famous story of Elisha and how there was this lady who was the widow of a prophet. Think of like a minister's widow. And she, she comes to Elisha and lets him know that she has these debts, her husband has died, and the creditors are going to come and take away her kids. And remember how Elisha oversees a miracle there. He says, go gather all these vessels. Remember that? And so this lady gets all these bowls and vessels. All she had was some olive oil. And Elisha directed her to start pouring the olive oil. And remember what happened. That olive oil never ran empty. It just kept pouring until all these jugs were filled. And then she could sell... She sold all that oil and paid her debts and had money to live off. That was God's provision for a widow. Now, in this context, God also commands his people to provide for the poor and the needy. Now, tonight, I'm not preaching a sermon about the diaconate. I mean, there, there's room for a whole nother sermon for the deacons connected with the calling of the diaconates. 
And we have, it's a wonderful thing in the Reformed churches how we have deacons who are called by the Lord Jesus Christ in his name to provide for the needy in the congregation. That's a marvelous thing. But guess what? We are all prophets, priests, and kings. We have the office of all believer. You can't say, well, we have deacons and therefore it's not my calling to help any of the needy or the poor. No, you have the office of priest which is a merciful office. Look at what God says in verse 7 of our chapter. He says, If among you one of your brothers, notice that. Notice how God calls fellow Christians brothers. Just like in our families, hopefully. If one of our siblings has financial problems and we can help them, we better try to do that because we're family. We're united by that blood bond. Here he says, if among you one of your brothers, notice how we're to view each other in this congregation. Yes, you might not know everybody in the congregation very well, but guess what? You're sitting next to your brothers and your sisters. You're part of a family. So he says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Now, the Bible in the New Testament says, do good to all men. So notice, we can glorify God and magnify his name by showing generosity towards unbelievers. But what does Paul say? But especially to the household of the saints. So especially, that's the emphasis here, showing love and generosity to needy saints. Notice the command in verse 11. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Now notice how there we read, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. You might say there almost seemed to be a contradiction in this passage because earlier on God said there would be no poor in the land. I suppose that refers to the fact that the Lord is going to provide for the poor through the loving generosity of other saints. Maybe God is pointing to the fact that he is sending them into a land flowing with milk and honey, so there will be much But notice how very clearly and explicitly the text says here, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Remember how Jesus picked up that quote one time. Remember, it is shortly before Jesus' crucifixion. And he is at the home of Lazarus. And Mary, the sister of Lazarus, is so grateful for how Jesus has raised her brother from the dead. And so... At that dinner, do you remember how she takes this very, very, very expensive perfume and she pours it on Jesus? And remember how Judas Iscariot starts a little whispering campaign like, oh, that's what a waste of money that could have been sold for all kinds, hundreds and hundreds of denarii and the money could have given to the poor. And we're told, yeah, Judas Iscariot carried the money bag and was stealing out of it. But then Jesus steps up and says, no, what Mary has done is actually timely. It was a preparation of me for my burial. He says, you you won't always have me with you. So it's very fitting that she gives this big gift. But then Jesus quotes this passage. He says, you will have the poor with you always. Now, I think we need to reflect upon that. Because one thing I want you to think about tonight is, 
who is a needy brother or a poor sister to whom I can show generosity? And the danger is that we say, well, we don't have any poor amongst us anymore today. I think, I think there is a little bit of a challenge when we are in circles where we're surrounded by people who, by the grace of God, are working hard, providing for their families, that we might say, it doesn't seem like there's very many needy people. So sometimes it takes a little work. We need to try to identify where, where is a needy person? Who is a needy person? Children, for example, if I'd say to you, okay, let's say the Lord has blessed you and you have quite a bit of money in your bank account already. Or maybe you have received a gift or you did some work and you have, you have a quite a bit of money in your bank account and, and you think, well, I would like to, you know, use my money to magnify God. And the question is, well, who, who is needy? Who do you know who's need, that is needy? Who could you help? Maybe you have to go to your dad or mom and say, Dad, Mom, or Grandpa, Grandma, do you know anybody who's needy that I could help? But notice Jesus said, and the Old Testament said, there will never cease to be poor in the land. There are poor people around us. One of my students who's gotten out of prison recently, he doesn't have a house yet, he doesn't have a car yet. According to our standards, that's pretty poor, isn't it? One thing I've done is I've tried to reach out and find people through things like Upwork. And you young adults, you can be very ingenious too. Our young adults are very tech-savvy. Our young adults also are free to travel, sometimes more than some of us who are married with children. And um, one way to find people who are needy is, is through the internet even. One way I've done that is through Upwork. Upwork is a thing where you can find people around the world. If you have a job that needs to be done, you can identify someone in a different country who's even a Christian. And what you can do is you can hire them to do jobs and, and help provide for them generously in that way. So the question for us is, how do we identify the poor? Who is around us as poor? Who is a needy person who we can love and show mercy to? And we better not say, there are no poor left for me to help in the 21st century. Well, now the word of God begins to come with some warnings to us. Look at verse 9, where we have a warning. So now you've, you've come across someone who is poor and needy, and this is what God says, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. So verse 9 says there, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. If you have the King James Bible, you'll see that it says, you know, beware lest you have a wicked heart. The New King James translates it a wicked thought. The ESV says an unworthy thought in your heart. What's interesting is that the literal word here is belial. It says don't have a belial heart. Now, if you know your Bible, You'll know that, for example, when there were those troublemakers when King Saul became king, they didn't want to support him. They're called sons of Belial. 
What's going on there? Well, apparently the word Belial comes from a word that means not worthy or not beneficial. And so a son of Belial is a worthless and wicked person. Now God says when you and I come and we, uh, we see someone who has needs, who's poor, who could need a loan or something like that, don't have a bilial heart. Don't have a bilial, a worthless thought in your heart. And then we're told what the worthless thought is. And notice how, you know, sometimes Washington, D.C. thinks that they can change the laws or the tax laws and, and as if there was going to be like no, no corresponding change on the part of taxpayers. Here, God refers to how people might take the law that God is giving about the seventh year of rest and then they will abuse what they, they know about it. The law says, remember, when the seventh year comes, you need to forgive people whatever debt they have. So the bilio thought is this. Oh, no, it's only one year before the year where you have to forgive everybody's sins. I mean, their debts. And now this poor widow comes to me or a needy person, and they say, I need to have a loan. I don't have any money to buy seed to plant in my field this year. Could you please give me a loan? And you think, oh, ho, ho, we're only one year out from, from the year of forgiveness and release. And so if I loan this person this money, they aren't paying me back again. And they don't plan to. So God says, no, don't, don't do that. What's the spirit of the law? The spirit of the law is this is that if there's a needy brother who needs help, for one, you loan him money without interest. Right now, we deal in a, we're in a situation where interest rates are going up. If you want to buy a house, mortgage rates are going up. God said, no, if you're going to loan money to a needy brother, don't charge him interest. In prison, the interest is that if you borrow something from someone, you've got to pay him back twice as much, 100% interest. God said to the poor, don't do that. And then on top of that, God says, and if they can't pay it, you need to be willing just to forgive their debt. And remember, when we think of things like that, we need to remember God has forgiven the debt of our sins, the complete debt of all of our sins. That's a motivation to forgive other people purely monetary debts. So notice how God protects the poor here with these commands. So part of that for us means, too, then let's not impute evil thoughts to the poor. They're trying to take advantage of me. Secondly, God says, don't have a a tight fist. The picture is of you having some money in your hand, and that hand is closed tight, and you're not going to let anybody get any money out of your hand, kind of like, Ben Franklin famously would go to listen to George Whitfield, the, the great, the celebrity preacher in early American times. And Whitfield would preach the word of God, and then what he would do is he would ask for donations for the orphanages that he had started in Georgia. And Ben Franklin ahead of time would, would say, I'm not going to donate a, a dime. Well, as soon as he would hear Whitfield preach, he became friends with Whitfield, actually, even though he was not a Christian. He would find himself even asking people around him for loans of money so that he could donate it to that cause. But he went in with a tight fist. God says, don't have a tight fist. He says, or shut your hand against your poor brother, verse 9, and you give him nothing. 
Okay, that's what we are by nature. We're very selfish with our money. How much money did you spend this week? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could look at how everybody in the congregation, how we all spent our money this week, and what we spent our money on? We'd probably be very amazed if we looked into each other's lives and saw what was on our credit cards or what we wrote checks out for, because we can be so easily selfish. God is addressing the innate miser in us. But here the problem is that we see a poor person. They have a legitimate need. They're poor, they're needy, and we're just unmerciful. We don't care. Or we say, I don't have enough money. Remember, kids, you maybe don't have a lot of money. Some of the kids in the congregation do have money, though. But remember, even if you say, well, I don't have a lot of money to help a needy person out, remember, again, Jesus Bless that widow lady who just gave like two pennies. So in the end, we're going to see it's not the amount, it's the motivation that's the crucial thing, although God even talks about the amounts here. In our culture, we face the incredible pressure to try to accumulate more, get more for me, for my retirement. God says, no, don't, don't, Shut your hand. And then God says, beware of a grudging spirit. So you're getting a little pressure. You feel the pressure to give. Kids, you know what it means to do something grudgingly? Have you ever done that? Your mom says, okay, you need, you need to clean your room. It is an absolute disaster. Company's coming over. And you do it, but you do it grudgingly. That means you don't really want to do it. You unhappily do it. God says in verse 10, You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. One thing you can do is foster benevolent causes that you're happy to give to. Maybe there are certain things that needs that, that really don't touch your heart, well, then find some other needs, some other giving causes that, that you can delight to give to. And then we have a warning, too. God says, okay, so there's this poor person, there's a needy person. You're aware of their situation, but you're not going to help them because you have that closed fist. And God says, watch out, because you know what could, could happen? Is that person, that poor person, can get on their knees and they'll pray to me and they'll tell me what you did. They'll basically pray an imprecatory prayer, and they'll pray, God, judge this person. This, this person had enough money to help me, and they didn't. Verse 9 says, And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. That cry is a judicial cry. It's, a, it's like a legal complaint. It's like, Or you could say it's like a, a child, when your sisters or brothers going to dad and mom and saying, I, I had this problem, and I fell off my bike, and he wouldn't help me. My brother wouldn't help me. And then God will chastise the stingy person. So those are the negative warnings. The positive warning, or positive command, is this. Give open-handedly with a cheerful heart. Twice in our text, in verse 8 and verse 11, God says, open your hand. Look at verse 8. 
There it says, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And then go ahead to verse 11. You shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So notice first, God says, open your hand. That is, take some money out of your bank account. Take some money out of your billfold. Take some money out of your your piggy bank. Take some money out. Open your hand and offer it to someone. And then God becomes even more strong about it. He says, open your hand wide. That is, generously give. And it's striking that here that God talks about how we are to give Whatever it may be, he says, but you shall open your hand and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. That is pretty, pretty, pretty broad, isn't it? So let's say the person has some pretty serious needs, and you have, you have the ability to care for that brother. Open your hand wide, God says, and help him out. In the Hebrew, things are even more intensive. We have this Hebrew intensification of things so that literally in the Hebrew Bible it says, Opening, open your hand. And then verse 10, you shall give to him freely. Giving you shall give. It's intensive. It's emphatic. I love to how God says now, after you've bought that Hebrew slave. So kids, you, you, you were sold now. You, you had to work for six years for this other person. Probably not a nice person all the time. But then you get to the seventh year and you're finally going to be liberated, freed. It's like you're being freed from prison. You can go do whatever you want. You can work once again, provide for your mom if she's a widow. And you know what God tells, tells your boss? The guy had been your master. He's, it says, he better have a wide open hand and he better be very generous with you. We're told in verse 14, the master must do this. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress, as the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. So God says, after that person has worked for you all those years, don't say, well, hey, I paid for him in the first place. I paid good money for him to be my bondservant. No, God says, no, when you let him go, you be generous. You go out to your sheep, and you pick out a a number of nice, healthy sheep, and you say, these are for you. You go and get some wheat, say, this is yours, and you go and you get some wine. Get some skins of wine and and send the man away, blessed with many good things so that he doesn't go away in poverty. So God says to us, we are to open our hand, but what does he mean? Also, open your heart. Open your heart to the needs of the poor. Now, I think what we have in Deuteronomy 15 is one of the great Old Testament passages about giving, Whereas in the New Testament, I could have preached on the New Testament passage, but I think you're more familiar with that. That's the famous passage in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, where it says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves 